Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles, and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our plain sight with 2020 vision. Let's go. Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast, presented by Invisible. Uh, I'm here with uh, Fritz Henricks. He is an educator. He was, he's recently been asked to become an advisor to Invisible. Uh, he's been teaching the great books to homeschooled kids for about 30 years now and had the great pleasure of having Francis as one of his early students. And I've always been fascinated by Francis's ability to uh, bring his thoughts in through the lens of ancient history. I've always been very interested in, in ancient history as a study, but I've never been able to read the great books. Um, and so I try to get it through secondhand sources of having conversations like this. And so hopefully we'll benefit. And we're going to start with talking about Plato's Phaedrus uh, and because Plato, from my understanding, had kind of a beef against writing uh, and didn't really like writing um, and uh, and thought of it as sort of a poison. Uh, is that an accurate representation, Fritz? And welcome to the show. Well, first, yeah, first, let me just say, Stuart, very glad to be on your show and uh, really enjoyed our conversation before and looking forward to being able to chat today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. Um, now, there is, there's a little irony to this because Plato was actually a playwright and uh, he wrote plays, of course. And um, however, the story is told that he got listening to the philosophy of Socrates and becomes, became so enamored with Socrates' philosophy, he went home and burned all of his plays. And so you might think of that as a sort of negative entrance into philosophy. Um, yet when Plato comes into the study of Socrates philosophy, he begins to write uh, Socrates philosophy into dialogues, which is very curious because they they read like little plays. And some of the delight of them is the fact that, you know, it's not like Aristotle where he just go ahead, you know, explains his position in long, tedious prose. He makes these little stories and the stories at many times are very dramatic. And so it's it's as if he denies the world of um, you know, the world of theater and wants to pursue philosophy, but you just can't get him away from that theater. He just comes back and presents philosophic plays. So um, now one of those uh, these uh, he writes these different dialogues, um, and um, uh, there are many of them. But one of them that is uh, oftentimes cherished is the Phaedrus, and the Phaedrus begins by a discussion of love and. Um, in typical for Plato's method, he begins by presenting three different uh, speeches on love. And um, there's kind of a buildup to it. And, and one common element in uh, um, Plato's philosophy is the three metals. You have bronze, silver, and gold. And um, so the speeches reflect that. The, the, it's the bronze speech, the silver speech, and finally you get the golden speech. And um, you know the, the first speech basically starts out by a rant against lovers and how possessive and controlling and demeaning they are. And it finishes off with this kind of snide little joke that if you want a really good lover, find somebody who doesn't love you because love's a pain. <laughs> well, this is the bronze speech. You have to, you know, you have to understand it's the bronze speech. The second speech uh, basically carries the same um, uh, the same element through where it says, you know, we're going to do a little better here. We're going to organize this speech. We're going to uh, begin with the definition of love. And the definition of love that they begin with is love is a, um, a passion that is so strong, it makes us forsake our rationality as people and do crazy things. And that uh, that 
the theme of that speech is basically similar to the last speech that love makes people be obnoxious. And um, uh, the, the final uh, conclusion to that speech is that uh, says, as the uh, as the wolf loves the lamb, so the lover loves a beloved. Now, how does a wolf love a lamb? Yes, a wolf loves a lamb. But how does the wolf love the lamb? He loves it so much that he will destroy it. And so the concept of the lover, you know, the lover has this desire, but the desire oftentimes leads you to destroy the object of your love. Well, the second speech is given by Socrates. And after giving that second speech, he says, whoa, that was really bad. I did a bad thing. I I um, I actually said an evil thing against uh, the God love. And so I need to make an atoning speech. And then you get the golden speech. Uh, the golden speech is finally, uh, basically it defines love as a sort of odd madness given by the gods that causes our soul to desire to be lifted up to the beholding divine things. And so it's this sort of, you know, the, you can even use contemporary love language it talks about you know love gives us wings and this is the imagery that plato uses it gives us it gives our soul wings that we are lifted up to the contemplation of things that are beautiful truly human and ultimately to the you might say the love of god and so um anyway it's a very fun beginning to the dialogue but very quickly the dialogue changes over to an examination of writing and it examines all three of these speeches and says, what can we learn about writing from looking at these speeches? And you do learn a lot. I mean, it's wonderful to teach to high school students because, you know, you're trying to get them to understand unity of theme and development of ideas through logical kind of progression. And it talks about that very nicely, about how you have to understand the structure of ideas. You need to put ideas together in a way that makes sense. And... Um, However, at the end of the dialogue, Socrates does this little switcheroo on you. You know, first you think the dialogue is about love. Then he progresses and changes the topic to talking about writing. And finally, he says, you know what? There's something much higher than writing. And he says, if you're smart, you don't spend all your time writing on paper. You spend your time writing on souls. Hmm. And that he sees as primarily um, happening in conversation. It's conversation, it's dialogue, talking with people. And um, basically he says, if you're a good farmer, you will plant your seed in, so in, in souls rather than on paper. And so it's not so much that Plato has a, you know, a real beef against writing. Um, you know, he is a writer. He, you know, he's a former playwright who kind of writes philosophic plays. But it's interesting that at the end of the Phaedrus, he really does put up as the ideal man, the man who is deeply involved in conversation. And, you know, I, th I think it's a very important thing to remember, particularly as you think about, uh, you know, teachers, people taking time to really talk with you. And, and of course, not just teachers, friends. I mean, the friends that you have that you sit down and, you know, you have a good conversation with it. That sort of experience is actually pretty fundamental to being human and um, being able to develop real closeness with people. It's so interesting because that particular idea of having conversations with people, uh, that serendipitous nature that you would have with friends, not necessarily with teachers, teachers seem more formal, um, but at Invisible, we're a remote first company. 
So the idea of having a serendipitous conversation, those opportunities to have the serendipitous conversations don't happen as much. So we have to arrange those conversations. And whenever you arrange a conversation, it changes the that serendipity. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of remote? I know you've done a lot of teaching online as well. Mm. Um, but what do you think about like this 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 challenge that we're in in terms of invisible about like having this serendipity serendipity that we need in order to have relationships that are really strong but at the same time not really having the avenue of that which is like a water cooler or just being able to hang out and stuff like that yeah yeah well oh boy this, i mean this is kind of a this question has so many different angles to it um oh uh, well let me begin by telling you a funny story um I have a friend of mine, not Francis, um, a, a, a kind of a techie friend that uh, really loves technology. And, uh, you know, he was into Bitcoin way back when, and, you know, anything technology, he, he was always on the forefront of it. And um, um, he, he has had some long conversations with me about uh, his plans to be able to reverse the effects of gravity. So you know, some of it gets a little far out, but his, um, uh, his ideal is to live in a flying house. And he would love to have his technology bring him to the point where his house can be a flying entity. And, you know, I look, I listened to that and I said, you know what, Dan, uh, I have to tell you, my image of the good life is a hobbit hole. All right. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's so much of what I think of as what brings goodness to life as are being fixed to the earth, um, are being fixed to our neighbors, are being unable to avoid the irritating people around us and working through all that. And so, you know, Invisible does not have a physical campus. And, you know, there's the, the whole concept of the water hole or the, the, the that drinking water thing, whatever they call it, uh, where, you know, you come to the just come and have conversations with people. And face-to-face um, -face conversation is um, really a, just a delightful part of being human. And yes, you can do that online. We're having a great conversation here. Uh, uh, but there, um, there is something special about living side by side and that tends to develop friendships. And so what do you do? Um, in a situation where you have a company like Invisible, where you have a tremendous amount of distance uh, interaction that's going on, and you want to be able to build that sense of closeness with people, um, to be able to say, you know, I really know this person well. Well, I'll have to say, to me, good conversation is um, a big part of developing that sense of connection and uh, meaningful relationship with people and um I think it's a very important skill to do. And one of the most delightful contexts in which I find that happens, even though, you know, you certainly don't need to be discussing books to have that happen, but coming around mm -hmm. uh, mm. great books that bring up very uh, important life topics. Uh, I find discussing those books with people is just kind of puts you on the freeway to friendship where I, you know, mm. even people that, you know, I may radically disagree with, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy to peg. I'm kind of, traditional conservative evangelical Christian Republican, you know, it's, I'm easy to predict on lots of issues. And so, uh, but I really enjoy being able to interact with people who are radically different than me, discuss important issues, understand how they see life differently um, and, you know, challenge one another, go back and forth. And um, I find that thrilling. I mean, the 
maybe that's just my nature, but you know, from my discussions with other people in invisible, sounds like <laughs> a lot of the invisible cultures, people that are kind of idea people that love talking about ideas. And um, you know, I thought being able to take invisible uh, partners and be able to uh, share discussions around great books would be a great way to foster invisible culture. That sounds like something we should talk to Zohar about, about getting, uh, he's running the Castelio organization where are doing, uh, doing a lot of uh, things. That seems like a book book club is right up the alley for that type of thing. Um, and I mean, I would, mm-hmm. love to, I would love to study the great books because my, my main challenge when it comes to the great books is the, is the language that they're written. in. you know, I tried when I was 14, my friend gave me the Plato's Republic uh, and I tried getting through it and I tried to pretend getting through it and it didn't work. And I, I couldn't understand what he was saying. Maybe it was too young. Um, uh, but, and, and I just, it's just like the language is so ancient that it, it doesn't fit my, like, you know, my reading style, which is reading books from the nineties, reading books from the two thousands, which is just like in common, common language, which is strange now. Cause now I speak a range of different languages, uh, uh, and I can read in those languages and that doesn't bother me, but for something about going back and having this kind of like this, this language has changed, but even like the translation, it's like they translate it. But then it still seems like it's an older language. Like nobody ever translates it into contemporary language. Is that accurate? Uh yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I my own great books program that I've been doing for this long period of time. Um, I begin with twelve to fourteen year olds, and it's a mm-hmm. five year program. Mm-hmm. And um, I do select the translations carefully. Um, there are certainly some translations that are better, kind of bringing things into a modern language than others, but. I mean, what you're saying about, you know, having kind of reading ruts that we tend to be in, um, you know, it's that is very easy to do. And it's I think we really uh, we work on familiarity a lot. We have ideas that are familiar to us. And the danger with that is sometimes ideas are so familiar to us. We think we understand what they mean, but we actually don't. And uh, one of the things I think that's really nice about just kind of getting thrown into the cold waters of, you know, reading through a wide scope of time is you have to sit there saying, what does that guy mean by that? Mm-hmm. You know, what does that term mean? What is he thinking of? And I think you develop the habit of um, thinking radically, thinking really to try to investigate the meanings of words. And by doing that, you become a more careful communicator yourself. And so that's, you know, that's kind of another thing I'm I'm thinking would really be helpful for the invisible culture is Mm. for just going through that process of looking at texts that are kind of difficult to us modern people. They, you know, begin with foreign ideas and try to get into that world, try to understand that world. And then when you come back out, you have kind of a different perspective on your own that I think you you have, you develop habits that make it so that when you come back in to understand the world around you, you do that a little deeper, uh, a little more, um, a little more carefully and um, um, be able to, just be, I, I think you you develop a better ability to communicate with other people because you're you're careful in your language. Definitely. Uh, and I've found that from learning other languages and being in other countries, I've I've definitely had that. There's a culture shock. Ah, that's that's interesting. So it's a culture shock when I when I read those books as well, because it's also a form of culture shock when I'm when I'm reading something from somebody who's like from a completely different culture, like separated not only by time and space, but media 
languages because one of the things that i've noticed of traveling to a lot of different cities and all over the world is that the media landscape and the globalization although definitely were oversold to me growing up in the silicon and silicon valley growing up in the san francisco bay area I was told that basically globalization was completely taking over the rest of the world um, and that if you go anywhere in the world that you'll you'll find the same patterns. And then I w went to all these different places and found that, yes, there is like a veneer of of media that changes people's ideas and stuff like that. But the common like the the there are some really, really big cultural differences, regardless of what media people are consuming. Given that anyway, uh, media has kind of changed, created a lot of pathways across the world so people in bangkok know what's going on in the united states whereas you travel in time and read plato that's like not only a huge difference in time it's a huge difference in uh, a huge difference in space as well and a huge difference in cultural evolution from those points and the more i read about history the more i realize just like how drastic those changes in history yeah we have the commonalities that go through of human nature and stuff like that but also cultures like crazy where where do you come on this kind of uh, cultural debate about like how what how much is it how much are we similar versus how much are we different from cultures and stuff yeah um I'll, let me just say i sure. i find the same thing that you speak of and i i also delight in it being able to to um see that not everybody thinks like me and you know i think i understand how other people think but then there's sometimes i have interactions where i just you know, I, I totally off my radar screen. And I, I really do enjoy that. And, um, well, you know, I, I, just in about five weeks from now, I start another, another five-year class with another class of kids coming in and, you know, we drop them right in with Homer's Iliad. And, and you know, I basically pull kids that are from the homeschool community and we tend to be you know, fairly conservative Christian types. But, you know, here you are taking a bunch of these conservative Christian homeschool kids, you drop them into uh, reading Homer's Iliad. And uh -huh. here women are prizes in war. Yeah. And <laughs> they're just going, wait a minute, what? this is not right. And, you know, this is that's not the way we are to think about people. And there's just, it's just a whole different world. And the gods are running around on the battlefield and Zeus is, you know, philanderer and immoral. And so it's, it, it's a really different world. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times the reaction, the response of that, I just want to turn off, say, I, this is not my Much world. Yeah. I do not appreciate this. And, um, but I think very quickly they start to see, oh, there are things that are profoundly similar to me. And that um, there are things, you know, here this is, uh, this is a work written somewhere between 800 and 1200 BC. So we're looking at 3000 years ago. And here's a book that's 3000 years old. And there's things in it that I understand. And so it's just, you know, as a teacher, it's really fun to, you know, with, with particularly with younger kids, I, I do have to kind of do a lot of leading by the nose. These are hard texts to read. And, and you know, I want to get them to the point where they come to class ready to discuss that text. But, you know, I, I know this is a, a tall order. And so there is sometimes we're just kind of having to bring them into this world. And um, but to have those points where you start to see them feel the drama of the story. You know, it's it's not just a foreign thing to them. They understand the story. They see the drama. They they enter into it, and boom, they're time traveling. You know, I, I just think this is you know our best chance to time travel is to be able to read ancient texts sympathetically, Ooh. enter into them, 
see the world through this author's eyes and stand back and say, well, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, we, we just get to, we get to take a look. So that's really interesting. Now I'd love to talk about this as a technology. So we have writing as a technology and it's, it's a, it's a technology of time travel. As you just said, we can travel across time and space, which people could do in oral traditions, but not with as much fidelity. Um, and so now we're at another cultural transition that I often think about that we're in the same level of cultural tradition, tradition of the axial age, which is, you know, uh, where we have this ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Christianity, large scale transformations, writing, um, all these new ways of thinking that really got encapsulated in these books. 99% of it disappeared, but we got that 1%. And that 1% kind of gives us insight into that time, that time of great transition. And now we're at it, we're in a new time of transition. And it has so much to do with technology. It has so much to do with the Renaissance and the last 400 years of this like rebirth of, of, of all the, you know, of, um, of Aristotle's writings, who you know was the polymath of polymath, and created all these different things and all these different subjects, and and then you know three hundred years of cultural transition of back and forth between liberals and conservatives, and back and forth, and now we're in another strange version of that that we don't have to get into. But and now we've got this new technology that seems like of AI and 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 invisible, so wrapped up in that. Uh, and like, what do you think, knowing about this technology of writing? Um, and having this outsider's perspective of these things that we're, we're that we're that we're involved in, what do you think? Uh, how can we prepare ourselves for this new world? What, what like because now it's like, and that it's so interesting that I don't know if, how much you know about large language models, but large language models, like everybody thought that AI was going to be this thing that we spoke to on the phone um, or uh, uh, you know like her. But we're actually just writing with it. The only way to interact with these AIs is we're actually just writing into a computer. We have to put our thoughts into text so that AI can understand it, which is like fascinating for me because I don't think anybody thought about that. Um, and I don't have any specific questions, but what do you think about this and like where are we headed and and how can the great books uh, how can the great books like sustain us during this time of great transition? Yeah. Um... I don't understand the world of the generative models like I would like to. Um, I've messed around with it and, um, uh, you know, have kind of gone from seeing as a little bit of a joke to being quite impressed with what it can create. Um, I'll have to say I, I did profoundly impress my wife on Valentine's Day by having OpenAI write a poem in Shakespearean sonnet form on the loveliness of Christie. And uh, she was quite impressed. And then I had to say, yeah, it was, it was the chat GPT. <laughs> so I, I'm not a poet at all. I'm, uh -huh. I'm really a bad poet, but uh -huh. um, it, 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 I mean, the whole thing worked out very nice. They wrote this very nice and it's in very good Shakespearean form and uh, had all the couplets correct. And so, yeah, it is very impressive. And um um, uh, I, I wish I would like to, well, I, it does certainly bring up the question of what is human intelligence, yeah. uh, what is machine intelligence. And, um, I think people are, you know, this kind of re-examining this question. Um, and, um, uh, well, I mean, one of the things I've told my students, because this is the, um, chat GPT is definitely, you know, for some teachers, a nightmare because now you can generate a uh, new text. And I, I guess there are, you know, AI detectors for teachers and work. papers. And things. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> well, and, it's, and this is kind of one of the things, well, if you want to talk about how it works in the classroom, yeah. um, 
I do a lot of discussion in my classroom. And so when I get material from a student, it's mm -hmm. quite often I can hear their voice. If it's not their voice, I say, you don't know what that word means, kid. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff like that that happens. But uh, at the same time, I want my students to be able to look at something like that and be able to use it effectively. Like, I would, you know, my son's uh, just finished up his freshman year in college at Hillsdale. And, um, you know, he, I was talking with him and he said, you know, what, dad, sometimes when I write a paper, I go on chat GPT and I have some clunky sentence and I say, give me 10 versions of this sentence rewritten. And he will look at all the versions of the sentence that it had and how it rewrites it and find the one that has, you know, the best style. And so I, I thought about that and said, oh, you know, there you yeah. go. There's a way to use that that's kind of pushing him along as a writer and at the same time using this new tool. But anyway, getting back to what my, my, my kind of little takeaway to my students as I talked to them about it, I said, you know, here, here's this new tool. And you may be looking at this and saying, ah, here's a new tool. I don't need to work on my writing anymore. You know, I, you know, here's this quick path to laziness. Yeah. But what I said, that, that is not the best conclusion. Um, you want to look at this tool and realize that unless you develop writing skills that make you superior to this tool, you are going to have your job very replaceable. Okay. If you are the sort of person that can't beat you know, chat GPT and writing, uh, who, why should a boss keep you? And mm -hmm. so this, what this means is you need to become a better writer. You need to work hard mm -hmm. on developing your human skills and uh, so that you can use these tools, uh, but yet improve your mind. I mean, this is a very similar situation with the, with the calculator. You know, you kids look at a calculator and say, oh, now I don't need to learn my multiplication tables. Well, uh, you give a kid a calculator who doesn't know his multiplication tables, he hits a wrong button, gets an absurd answer. He has no clue that that's an absurd answer. Yeah. All right. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's a tool, but you can see the most important tool that you have to work on is the one between yeah. your ears. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a good question there, which is like, how do you do that? But also I want to, I want to, I want to respond to, cause it's, there's a lot there of, uh, of essentially like, well, writing. So for me, whenever I, I use ChatGPT a lot, it helps me a lot in my work. It does not help me with writing at all. Um, well, I'm sorry. No, it does help me with writing, but it helps me with writing in the same way that that your son found out that it's like, I'm going to write this thing and then I'm going to have it check it, be an editor, kind of be that thing. But I, 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 every time that I try to get it to write for me, it's always dead. There's no soul to it. There's no spark to mm -hmm. it. There's no, there's no like uh, je ne sais quoi. Um, and it's just like, it's, it, it, it doesn't maybe, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, that'll be the different and it, it can be highly creative, but there is this sense of like that maybe, and maybe it goes back to that Plato idea of, of just like that conversation, like we're in a conversation, there's definitely a spark here. There's light here. There's like, uh, uh, you know, some might say a spirit, uh, but then, um, you know, in writing when your food is cooked by a machine, maybe it isn't the best, uh, you know, uh, maybe there is something when your mother cooks you a meal or whether, uh, you know, there's, there's a human being involved with that sort of love in, into it. Um, but then, yeah, then, that, then there's that tool behind in between our ears too, which is like, how do you improve that? And like learning how to use the tool in a way that is, um, uh, that like writing itself, writing is not only the, the, the output of writing that is good, but the actual act of writing improves our ability to think. And I'd be curious if Plato ever thought about that, that from or if he ever wrote anything about that angle as well. But I just threw a lot at you. What was, what's your most yeah. favorite thing that's 
favorite, or what, what do you want to talk well, about? Well, let me say one thing. Then I want to change the topic a little mm. bit to mm. illustrate it from a different angle. Um, but, you know, I think the more tools that we get, the more technology we get, the more we come to have immediate sense of the importance of our own humanity. Mm. And, you know, you think of chat GPT, chat GPT or any of these tools that we have uh, will never be more effective than a human slave. And we've seen time periods that have had, you know, very wide, mm. uh, very wide, uh, you know, use of slavery. And you think, you know, that there you didn't have to have artificial intelligence. You had enslaved intelligence. And there's a whole history of what that did to people to live in relationship to those slaves. But um, I think as you have the opportunity to do less, the question becomes very evident. What should I be doing? What should I put my effort into? And um, there's, well, I, I, you're just going to have to weave and dodge with me a bit here. Sure. I also really love making, I love making furniture. Uh-huh. All right. And it's been a long time love of mine. Even before, <laughs> before I got in the great books, I started woodworking. And uh, I recently really got into looking at green and green furniture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with green and green, but it's just a really lovely period of furniture. And um, it's just very detailed. Uh, well, I, I'm here in Southern California, and so I grew up going to the Gamble House in Pasadena, which is a beautiful example of green and green furniture, uh, green and green design. Uh, it's a beautiful house. They a green and green designed it back in 1910 and filled it with furniture that all matches the architectural style of the house. It's just a gorgeous piece of architecture. Well, green and green happens at this very interesting time in history for woodworking when mm. there was still a lot of people that had come from the tradition of manual furniture craft, people that could use their hands. Uh, And, you you know, you had this world of new machines that were being invented, the table saw, planers, joiners, uh, routers, all this stuff coming in. And um, they had the ability to use this machinery, but at the same time, they could stop and do those beautiful little details that only really happen with the human hand and so you get this stuff that has this beautiful execution and yet at the same time detail and so unfortunately today our you know our furniture our mass you know our our our, um, domestic architecture our furniture it's pretty much you know you never see a hand tool on it and it just produced through machine stuff and uh, there's just something missing there and I would have to say, I would hate to see that happen with writing and the products of the human mind that we get so dependent upon these machines, we don't know how to handcraft anymore. Mm. And I think as we go, you know, when this when technology comes in, there's always the people that go gaga over it. And, and they think, you know, the answer is you'll throw more technology at it. And they're not really realizing the subtlety of our human interaction where you know what, what's created by technology, we pretty much get to know and understand. And uh, over time, it loses its effect. I mean, you see this with movie special effects. You go back and watch the first Star Wars, it looks really corny. Um, but, you know, it, we always think the latest movies, the special effects are so great, but our eye gets used to it. And pretty soon we want something more. You always have to keep upping your game. And so um, how can we be thoughtful enough in the work that we do that we allow the technology to be a tool towards um, creating something that in the end has that timeless beauty to it, mm-hmm. timeless uh, delight. Uh, and that's kind of like how I see the, 
the green and green furniture where there is something, there's just something um, timeless about the beauty that it encapsulates. And there's there's lots of furniture that's this way. There's, you know, lots of homes that are this way. I mean, it kind of pre and post World War II is a bit of a falling off point in, um, you know, house architecture where, you know, anything mm -hmm. pre World War II oftentimes has that detail and loveliness to it. World War II, everybody comes back from the war and they're ready to just throw stuff through the machines and um, it just kind of looks boring. Yeah. And so anyway, that's, you know, I know I'm not really answering your question. I'm just trying to give some historical parallels that I think might give a little bit of a um, uh, an omen for the future as to how we can be more intentional about the way we use technology so that it doesn't just simply create more, but create something that still gives that uh, that spark of beauty that people always value. Yes. Uh, so no, you didn't answer the question, but that was actually exactly brought up something very interesting, which is why I love doing this podcast, which is just that the uh, uh, we have no idea how much we're losing by these gains in efficiency. And, and there's really no, it doesn't feel like there's any way to go back either. Like, we we have to go forward, uh, and and I grew up in a in an area that was like the good the you know the good under with quote marks is always more technology like more technology will solve this problem, uh, and then starting in 2016 2017 somewhere around that area I started to realize uh, well oh maybe that might have been a little bit of a naive uh, that maybe not technology more technology just naively. Go, go put against some sort of problem, maybe not solve it, uh, which is so interesting for invisible because invisible understands that. But and it, but it, but it's all people at invisible understand that. But at the same time, we're also super interested in technology. So we we in in this tension, there's this tension of of and it's so wild that they're in that we're in AI um, because this technology. I, I, I I'm like you in the fact that I like to have a like a very diverse set of um, uh, people that I talked to, and we went to our offsite in Barcelona. And one of my best friends uh, is from France, and he lives in Barcelona right now. And so I was lucky enough to spend a week with him right after spending a week with everybody at Invisible. Uh, and all the talk was about AI and about how this is going to change the world. And then I got to talk to my French friend who's, you know, like, uh, like, uh, center, uh, center, um, moderate uh, European, which means he's to the left of the moderates in the in the United States. And uh, had all the talking points about AI is going to take all the jobs and AI is going to have a, so I got to hear that as well from the other side. And it's like, I think you're right. I think that we are going to lose a lot. It's not clear what we're going to lose. We're also going to gain a lot. Some of that might, uh, might free us to become more creative. Some of that might free us to create things of beauty. But I think that, that creating things of beauty that's not in the technology itself. That's an attitudinal shift. And maybe if you have any some wisdom from the great books about that attitudinal shift as well, it feels like you you create beauty from like an inner an inner decision rather than sort of like a like a um I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh <laughs> um uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like whether there is an attitudinal shift that requires is required to create beauty? Yeah. Um, one of the little scenes that always comes to my mind, um, I don't know if quoting movies is, uh, you know, uh, apropos for our podcast here, but uh, I think it's the second Matrix movie. There's this scene where um, they're way down in the caverns where the people have hidden away in these caves and there's this great big old machine. I think it was generating oxygen for them or something. And 
they're they're chatting there and uh, the guy oh gosh now i'm not i i when you quote movies you got to quote it right and I, i'm gonna fumble <laughs> this all up but uh you know he's sitting there looking at these this machinery and he says wow you know aren't we powerful look at the machines we built what have we done and um, the other guy says, yes, uh, however, have we, do we use the machines or are the machines using us? You know, is basically when you have a relationship to a machine, is that machine going to shape you more than you shape the machine? Yeah. And I, you know, I, I brought up slavery before and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville has, I mean, he comes to America, 1835, Frenchman, and he writes Democracy in America, one of the really seminal works on kind of examining American life. And one of the most interesting things he does is looks at the difference between the North and the South huh. and seeing what is the effect of slavery on uh, the Southerners. And now usually you think of the master-slave relationship, the master is the one, you know, really shaping the slave, he's in charge. But de Tocqueville points out that the relationship to slavery shaped the Southerners as much as it did the slaves. Well, and, and one of the interesting examples he gives, I think it's on the, the north and south bank of the Ohio River. He says that uh, on the north bank of the Ohio River, a man is judged by the content and extent of his labor. On the south side of the Ohio, you know, in the south, um, uh, a man is judged by his capacity to avoid labor. All right. So, you know, think about that. You know, what how, what makes you a man? Is it your capacity to do or your capacity to make others do for you? Yeah. And that question is going to come up now because now now we have this thing that is going to with ChatGPT is going to benefit those who are pretty lazy in terms it's lazy matched with intelligence so that like people who know how to delegate um, uh, and who and who can then go and delegate are going to have, and I wonder how that's going to change our culture. Cause uh, I mean, it, it definitely in this hype phase that we're in, a lot of people are saying that with chat GPT, um, the only sk skill you now need to learn is how to use chat GPT or other AI tools. Uh, and if you can do that, then you can, then you can uh, get, continue to be employed uh, and everyone else is going to have very big challenges. Um, and so that, <laughs> that becomes like how well you can do less with more, but not with a slave too. And then there's another piece that's interesting, might be high tangent, but I also believe that Stoicism itself was created by a slave, uh, Epictetus, right? Um, and uh, we could talk about that as well. But uh, what, what do you want to talk about? Like this AI creating our culture and making us more similar to that Southern uh, kind of conception of who we are based on how little we do, um, uh, which is so interesting because you got the North as well, which is that Protestant, but the Protestants also were in the South and the Protestant work ethic, you have the Protestant work ethic as well that like... But then that got shifted, uh, and I wrote this. I read this great book recent, recently called *Pathogenesis* uh, that talked about how slavery was heavily influenced by um, epidemics as well, and how, like in the South, because of the the climate there, uh, the the slavery was like much much more prevalent because uh, you had diseases that uh, a lot of the West Africans were already immune to, basically. Um, in terms of 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 this of well actually the most interesting the the, the mosquito that caused uh, yellow fever came from West Africa with the slaves basically and then started to populate the Caribbean and the southern United States and then because they already had immunity to it it started killing the white people from Europe but it wouldn't kill the the slaves so that and then and then but that 
that mosquito couldn't survive in the north. And so then there was a divergence between that as well, which, which comes into that as well. Um, anything there you want to talk hmm. about? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're very good at bringing up lots of questions at once. Um, <laughs> well, um, yeah, uh, you know, one of, about the connection between Stoicism yeah. and uh, slavery, um, in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, he develops this whole kind of, you know, sequence of um, Western history, again, his development of Western history. And uh, he actually makes that same sort of comment that it was uh, within the context of a world that was heavily populated with slavery that um, gradually the master class became more and more superficial. And it was amongst the mm -hmm. slaves that you had this deep philosophic spirit and um, that, uh, you know, really the uh, the profound thinkers were arising from the slave class. And so it's, it's just, again, another kind of testimony to how how um, enfeebling power can become for us as human beings. We gain power. What do we want to do with that? We think leisure. And uh, this is uh, Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. And I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, just going to keep on throwing great books, quotes at you Please here, do. but this is the way I think. Yeah. Um, so Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics has this very interesting little section on um, the relationship between uh, work and leisure. And uh, uh, actually, I think I, I read an email from Francis recently. He was actually taking up this same theme. And uh, oh I'm not going to quote. I'm now going to bungle quoting Francis, too. Um, but um, he was he was making an argument for the importance of leisure and um Anyway, uh, it made me think about this Aristotle quote because Aristotle basically argues that um, leisure is not our goal, mm -hmm. that the goal of good human life is to work well. And um, you have this very, in Aristotle, there's this very positive view of work. And um, basically he, Aristotle, ah, if I can quote it right, um, he says, you do not, um, he, it, it, he says, it is childish to work for the end of leisure mm -hmm. rather than taking leisure towards the end of better work. All right. It's basically, you know, it's really challenging the American RV retirement mentality. You know, I want to go out there, earn a whole bunch of money so I can just stop working. Well, um, you know, there are there's, sure there's lots of jobs that uh, really exhaust people and retirement is necessary. Yeah, but um, yeah. Yeah, I had this uh, this grandfather that uh, he was uh, from my German side, and he always had this little phrase he liked to quote. He says, Arbeit macht das Leben süß. Work makes life sweet. And the phrase actually goes on. It kind of is a little bit more sarcastic, but he always took it as to just that the work is the sweetness of life. And uh, um, um, I have always thought it would be a beautiful thing if we can learn to order our work life so that... Um, retirement is not necessary. I mean, when I was in college, I had, I actually had Eva Braun as uh, one of my tutors at St. John's College, and she's really quite well-known lady. And, uh, um, you know, I have not read any reports of her death yet. The last time I looked her up, I think she was 91 or 92 and still teaching mm. and uh, just a brilliant lady. And, you know, of course, you're not going to be ditch digging when you're 92, but uh, teaching is a wonderful career that uh, I, I don't understand as a teacher why I should desire to make a whole lot of money off my students so that I can stop teaching. 
Um, I, I certainly hope that I can order my life. And, you know, as I get older, sure, I'm not going to teach as many hours, have as many students, but uh, I would like to be able to order my life so that I can look at my work as something that is a good and something that I can uh, lay hold of. And, you know, I can see the necessity of my own leisure. Um, I don't want to be a dull boy. I want to be able to take time to, to rest and um, take time to recuperate. Um, but getting away from work is um, ultimately, I don't think my goal. And it, I mean, coming from a Christian perspective, um, mm -hmm. there's a, a lot of people that look at work as the curse of the fall that, you know, when Adam and Eve mm -hmm. sinned in the garden, God says, you know, your work is going to be cursed. And, you know, I think sometimes they miss the fact that God gave them a garden to work in and said, work the garden, tend it. And, you know, after their sin and they fall and they're put out of the garden, God does curse their work. There will be weeds and thorns. Right. But that doesn't mean that work itself necessi necessarily means an evil. And um, so anyway, I, I think having a hearty understanding for the beauty of work, um, understanding work has purpose and wanting to have that work that you do be something that yes makes you money but also you know you really feel you are doing something good for the people that are around you and being a blessing to them um i think um i don't know how that uh well, i guess maybe coming back to the ai question that this you know the ai then is not a way for you to escape work but for you to be able to work better yeah yeah um and what a lot of people say we got about five minutes left. Uh, a lot of people say about AI is that it's going to get rid of all the jobs. I think that it will get rid of all those jobs that we're talking about that you need to retire in the RV from. Um, like a lot of those jobs are going away, and and there might be a lot of new creative jobs that are create that are creative that are simply about that creativity and simply about that creating beauty. Although that might be a, a, a strand of thinking from my uh, prior life as a techno techno optimist. Um, uh, who knows? I have no idea after the last few years of where, where we're headed. So um, uh, do, you, do you think uh, coming from this Christian perspective, a lot of people talk about kind of that we're at a new Tower of Babel where we have all this technology uh, that is like that's there that is going to give us the power of gods uh, and or uh, like and what does that mean for our souls and our, our, you know, like, well, I'd love to hear that from your perspective the last few minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, huh. one of the great questions um, in the history of Western thought um, is just looking at the role of reason mm. and um, being able to say, you know, what does human reason do? What is its place? How does it aid us? How does how is it fundamentally um, not give us what we need? Um, and so uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Blaise Pascal. And he says, the glory of man is reason. And the glory of reason is to know its limits. Mm. And um, so we have this beautiful thing called intelligence. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can have the Tower of Babel effect that, ah, you know, we will build ourselves to the gods. We, you know, we are, we are the gods now. And, mm. Um, and yet, uh, I think by looking at human nature intently, being able to see the fullness of human nature, um, I, I think we have pause, uh, we have reason for pause. We, we see that we as human beings still, uh, when we get power, we don't know what to do with it. 
we have a hard time understanding what is the goal of life, um, what is a good life. Um, there are these just huge questions that um, we really need to come come to be able to face. And you know, one of the wonderful things about so many of these books that um, you know, commonly called great books, it's kind of a, a vague term, but um, um, there's so many of them that focus on the big questions, um, not the question about, you know, how hot is it? What day is it? But what does a, a life well lived look like? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it mean to have family? Is there a God? If there is a God, who is he? What is our relationship to him? Um, you know, there's just all these questions that come up that give us the opportunity to practice our reason on questions that might put us up against the limits of its capacity. And in so doing, be able to say, oh, you know what? Uh, our, our human reason, reason is great. Um, there's wonderful towers of Babel that we can build. And yet at the same time, um, who is watching us do it? Mm. And how might we, you know, how does that give us pause for consideration? Mm. Beautiful. So last couple of minutes, uh, how can anybody listening to this from Invisible uh, find out more about you or maybe even engage you as advisor? Yeah, I am always uh, open to talk. Um, you know, as I said, I, I teach these uh, homeschool classes. I've been doing it for 30 years. It's called the Escondido Tutorial Service, uh, gbt.org. Uh, if you got kids, you want to put them in class, I'm always open. Uh, but uh, no, I do hope to have a fruitful relationship with Invisible. And I've been talking with uh, other members of the Invisible team about uh, things that we might do of discussions and different books to read together. And um, uh, you know, I have been teaching high school kids for the last 30 years and talking to a bunch of, you know, 30 and 40 something techies sounds like a great time to me. So I, and uh, you know, people, people all over the place that come from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, you know, homeschool land is great, but I'm, I'm ready to get off the plantation sometimes. Cool. Thank you so much, Fritz. Thanks so much to a delightful talk with you today. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.